Hi everyone, my name is Donnie. I'm from Oxus Practical Defense. Today, I have an exciting new development for you. We are doing our first interview on the podcast, and today I'm going to be talking uh, with a person who has written a book about her family and their experiences during the Bosnian Civil War. And we're going to be just talking about how that, uh, what that was, how that unfolded, and then applying it to a little bit of uh, a connection with Ukraine and Russia and what's going on today and what we can expect to see in the future. Today, I have Ella Cholich on uh, the line with me. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking a little about her book, Trees Without Roots, and we're going to be getting into a little bit of discussion talking about uh, the history of Bosnia and what that has to do with uh, Ukraine and the stuff we're seeing happening in Russia and Ukraine today. Uh, it's a very interesting topic that goes back over 100 years. We have a very long dec like decades leading up to what we're seeing right now, but we're just in a moment in time. And so what we're doing today is we're going to uh, talk with Ella, and uh, her family has some really unique experiences that directly connect her to this situation. And so we're going to talk with her and discuss a little bit more about her book, and she's going to talk with us about what we can expect to see in the future a little bit and kind of what's happened in the last 10, 20 years. And so we're going to dig into this and get into that. I'm super excited. How are you doing today, Ella? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, I'm super excited for it. Uh, this is one of those things I've been looking forward to for a while. And uh, now that we're finally getting to pull it together, uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing our discussion and, uh, and going through all this today. So um, before we get too far into anything, we, we just kind of need to like lay a baseline of credibility um, and establish kind of where we're coming from. So uh, why, don't we, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book um, and, and what's it about uh, and a little bit about your family history? Because really, as I was reading it, it's, it comes off as a mix between a history, an autobiography, and, a, like, and several other different mix of literature. And so, um, so tell me a little bit more about your book and, and what the idea is behind it so that we can establish just an understanding of where, we're, where you're coming from. So basically, my book, it is a true story about my father and aunt. My father was 16 years old when the war broke out, and my aunt was only 11 years old. And it follows their refugee story throughout the Bosnian War based off of the war letters that they wrote themselves, either to their parents or their grandparents. And so it's interesting because you get a variety of perspectives. I keep it neutral, but this is one of the first few books that's written from a mixed religious perspective. And to give you context, my family, well, me personally, I'm Muslim and Orthodox, but we also have some Catholics in my family. And so it gives this interesting clash because essentially these are, quote unquote, the different sides fighting against each other, it all into one family itself. And I followed their personal journey as they traveled to the different countries. So they went from Bosnia to Croatia. There's even at one point where they were on the front lines in Bosnia because my grandpa was a um, general for the Teslich Brigade. And my grandma started off as a triage nurse on the front lines and eventually made her way up the ranks. And then eventually they made their way to Germany and finally the United States. So they have seen quite a few things themselves. Yeah, that's amazing. There's uh, there's so much that we see about the history in that area that's really really uh, hidden from us Americans, right? Because we, we kind of, uh, since the Cold War, we're used to that area kind of being behind the Iron Curtain, and, and we only get so much information about what's actually going on, and most of it's open to interpretation based on the information sources that we get it from in the first place. And so I'm, I'm super excited for us to, uh, to dig into that a little bit more. But as far as connecting uh, what, what we've seen in Bosnia to what we're seeing in Ukraine, tell me a little bit more about what happened, what happened, what brought Bosnia to 1991 when we saw the war outbreak. 
what I heard, right, was that in in uh, basically post the, the fall of the, so of the Soviet Union in like 1991, right, we had the Iron Curtain fell, and then uh, it, it, and within just a very short period of time, I think it was like two months, right? They were there was already kind of a divide that happened in the country. Um, and, and what you mentioned earlier is that it was kind of a uh, a divide between that has there's different there's different histories about what actually caused that divide. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that would be accurate. When we're looking at Bosnia, there's many aspects that go into play because it's not only the religious component, but it's also the aspect that a lot of these politicians and presidents wanted to expand on their own territory as well. And this reminds me of another similar point between Bosnia and Ukraine is that the people are fighting against each other. They were once united and then this split caused them to turn around each other or turn against each other. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've seen in, in Ukraine, I did a couple episodes about the situation there and about their history uh, back prior to World War One. Uh, and one of the things that I found that was really interesting is that is that these countries that are in that area have been under occupation by various other places for many, many years. So there's always occupation going on. There's constantly control power changes going on. And uh, especially through World War One and World War Two, where these areas were just highly contested. Now, um, with Bosnia, uh, it's it's been always one of those things, like I said, that's kind of been shrouded in mystery for for the United States and and from our perspective. So, tell us a little bit more about the the culture, like and and the type of people who are there, and and uh, like what are we actually dealing with as far as a, a a dynamics goes within the country. I would say the country itself is very rich in culture, even when you look at the history from it. It was conquered by the Ottoman Empire, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and those traces of culture are still there today. Turkish coffee is a, well, I can't say Turkish because I will offend the people that it's technically Bosnian coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, a very, it's a very big deal over there. Everyone drinks it every morning, even I do, when I have the opportunity to make it myself. So I, they love their food. We have ciabatte, pita burek, obviously, really good stuff. <laughs> okay, so so let me ask you this. So with yes. Turkish slash what evolved into Bosnian coffee, isn't that where mm -hmm. they put like a certain type of cheese in the coffee? No, what, I've there's never heard there was there was a cheese. Maybe that's okay. Maybe I'm getting it mixed up with like Norwegian coffee because they have a. I know there is like a. Um, I think it's up there in the in further north that they have they have like cheese and coffee. Um, what tell me what the what the difference is there? Tell me about this coffee because I'm an avid coffee addict. Yeah, so um, to start off, we don't put cheese in the coffee. That's the first time I've <laughs> ever like, heard that's the first thing, like that. That's the first thing <laughs> yeah. we'll knock out the window. Yeah, but it's really easy to make. It's just um, we, my family, we like to use these, is it called coffee grounds? Yeah, yeah. The powdery stuff, yeah. The coffee grounds uh, from this Turkish brand, and you just put hot water and you let it boil over a little bit, but you have to time it right to take it off the stuff top before mm. it completely... Um, boils over to your stove top mm. and you just kind of keep going with it like a dance and that's essentially how simple the process is you can put mm. maybe a sugar cube in there if you're feeling a little bit bold but you serve it in a field john which is a cup that is like this big it's kind of like yeah. an espresso cup yeah um and you would share it with your family or you can even drink it by yourself and have two to three cups but it's really yeah, good that's probably my own weakness that would definitely play yeah. into it yeah, 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 that's interesting. That's interesting. I always, I'm, I'm, a, I like, I enjoy 
too much caffeine. And I actually, I tried going on like a caffeine, like, uh, like, like, a embargo for about a couple weeks there. I made it about two weeks and then I was like, okay, I'm done. This is, uh, I need more again. So yeah, yeah, life is too short to put yourself through that. Just enjoy all the coffee you can. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but yeah, it's a very opening culture because we do have all of these other cultures wrapped around packaged nicely into what Bosnia is, especially in the religious component where we have, if you look at it now, uh, Serbians technically are affiliated with Eastern Orthodox, Bosnians are primarily Muslims and Catholics, are, sorry, and Croatians are Catholics. So there is a lot of, what is the word? There's a lot of richness that comes with it. And so I know that may seem a bit daunting for people because it may seem extremely complex. We have all these holidays that we celebrate, a lot of family that are mixed religious themselves. So for instance, my family too. We have two Christmases, two Easter's, two New Year's. Then we also have Eid and a lot of other Islamic holidays sprinkled throughout. So it may seem like a lot, but I think that's what makes it extremely fascinating because there's always a reason to celebrate and it's just a very hospitable country. Interesting, interesting. So, to tell me more about your 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 family. So, the people who who, who the book are is primarily uh, sourced from is is your father and your aunt. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So, so, and I'm just saying aunt or aunt, right? I've heard both ways. Uh, so, so you have so you have those that family that's that's there that's living through this, and so everything you have is firsthand accounts of what actually happened. And and so, tell me more about them. Like, wh who were they prior to the war? They were just your regular children. They love to play, hang out with friends. You know, they went to school, everything. So it's interesting to see how upside down their world went essentially overnight. Yeah. And how old were they? Like uh, you said, you mentioned they went to school. How old, old were they when this stuff uh, first started to occur? Yeah. So technically, my dad was 15 and a half when the war started and my aunt was 11 years old. So they were extremely young. My dad would have just started high school and my aunt was still in is it middle school. I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. Middle school is 11 years old. Yeah, all those mm -hmm. grades get get me all mixed up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. So so they were just kind of like it, it, they were they were in their teenage close to their teenage years when all this stuff went down. So as as far as the 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 book goes, tell us more about like where the story actually picks up in the book. So I tried to start off the book by giving some historical context. I didn't want to put too much because anyone can write a history book about what happened and I want to give the story a more personal feel. So it starts off with the introductory historical context just to give some people a general understanding as to what has happened in the country before the war broke out. And then I also give a little bit of context as to who my father and aunt were. So I go a little bit into their childhood and try to emphasize on the normalcy of their childhood because they were just like any other kids they went to school, had their family, hung out with friends. And then after that, I, it shifts into how the war broke out in their home city and their entire refugee journey after that. Mm. And then I also follow up at the end with where they are now today, just to show that the progression of refugee stories. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And and their uh, their hometown, if I remember correctly, you said you say in the book, it's called uh, Teslich. Do I have that right? Test leech, yeah. Test leech, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, very interesting. And it's just a small, as far as I understand, it's just a small uh, countryside uh, area. It's it's very it's a, a really small city, to my understanding. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's a small city. 
um, not really so much on countryside. I know it gets a little bit confusing because there are some moments where they do go to the countryside mm. and then come back. But it was a city. My, um, that's where my grandpa owned a cafe called Cafe Buggy. It was very popular at that time and no longer, unfortunately, no longer exists. But it's a very much city feel. Think of kind of when we have these smaller cities. I don't know if you're familiar with San Jose in California, but it very much reminds me of downtown San Jose. Not in, not to the same extent, but in terms of sizing. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, um, most of the time I spend is in Sacramento or L.A., where my family lives out there. So I haven't been to San Jose, but I think I get I think I get your drift. Kind of a suburb-esque feel. Is that... Yeah, yeah. So it's not a huge city, but it's also not a completely small city. It's kind of in between. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, I, I can identify with that because I live in a suburb just outside of a much bigger city. And so we're kind of like 10 minutes from the bigger city, but we're not in the bigger city. So um, kind of something like that. Excellent. So so we have this this situation that develops and uh, you end up with uh, some really interesting stories about what actually happened. Uh, one thing you mentioned was uh, a, a story where uh, your grandfather ends up in a, uh, a standoff with the, the police who are there. Um, it, would you mind giving me more about that story? Yeah, I'm not going to uh, expose so much because I do want the audience to pick up and read the book, but mm -hmm. I will give some context. Uh, essentially, what my grandpa did is he would hold peace protests at his cafe, uh, Cafe Buggy. And this was right before the outbreak of war because him and a lot of other people in the city, they did not want something like this ha to happen in their hometown. So he would hold peace protests. And that, again, not to go too much in the political situation, but it didn't, it, just because, oh, sorry. I don't want to go too much in the political situation because even though the peace protest did have its positive effects, there were people that were still against that. And so he had a confrontation with the chief of police because they wanted to, him to go to their office because of these protests that he was holding. But my uncle, or not my uncle, my father's uncle, I call him uncle too, so get, that's why it may seem a little mm -hmm. bit confusing. But he told my grandpa not to go and so he didn't. And the next day, the police came to confront him, asking why he didn't want to go to the station. And that's where they had their little standoff in the city. Mm. And so I know, yeah, it may seem a little bit crazy, but that's how war was like. It was a very tense situation, and they didn't know who they could trust at that time. You end up with a little bit of Wild West vibes. Um, yeah, kind of mafia in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. So, so you end up with this type of situation, and uh, tell me more about what happened in the aftermath to to your aunts and and your father as they were uh, they were basically forced to leave their hometown. Uh, if I remember correctly, your uh, your your grandfather, I believe, was still on the front lines during that time. Is that what you said earlier? Um, and and then they and your aunt and father were refugees that had to trans uh, had to to find transit by themselves. Uh, to to escape the conflict is that tell me more about like what happened there in that period of time yeah so my father and aunt they would go back and forth quite a bit because on one hand they did want to stay with their parents they didn't want to be separated from them because the the is their closest family relative but on the other hand it was too dangerous for them to stay together so there would be moments where they would first be sent to Croatia but then they would come back to stay with their parents because they would miss them and that's when they would be on the front lines. And then they would go back to Croatia, and then eventually they would make their way to Germany, 
And then once their temporary protection status was up, this is kind of where their paths split temporarily because my father stayed in Germany to work longer. And then my aunt ended up was one of the first from the family to go to America. So my father then later followed to America as well. I think it was a year later, about a year later. And then they set their life there. They started off in Santa Clara Mission Town and then eventually ended up where they are today. Wow, that's amazing. It, you, the thing is that there's a we, we always think about the United States as being a place that's uh, we have a lot of refugees, right? Because we're our, our economy is the number one in the world. And uh, and although China is catching up rapidly and uh, which is a whole nother episode. <laughs> but, um, you know, our economy has been uh, one of the largest in the world for a long time. And so we've and we have a lot of open land mass um, where because we in our in our states. And so uh, we have a lot of re refugees who end up making it here. So in a moment, we'll talk more about what that looks like and uh, what the United States, like how they, how the United States had played a, a con played a, a part in that conflict uh, and or lack of it. And then we'll talk a little bit more about perhaps some policy that's uh, that uh, that as Americans, we should be considering as we decide how we should interact with these other countries and with these other conflicts that go on internationally. Um, a lot of it's, there's been a, a line of, of politics here in the United States for the last, well, really the last 10, 15 years, kind of following the stuff with 9-11 and, uh, and then moving into the war in Afghanistan, uh, this kind of isolationist movement. And, and so I'm interested in hearing what the perspective is from a a country that has had internal conflict that United States doesn't really have anything directly to do with, but is interested in so much as it was connected to the Soviet Union and kind of had the fallout after the Soviet Union fell. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But as far as the with the war and uh, your family then uh, emigrating to the United States. Tell me more about what actually happened to Bosnia after like following the war. So we had this conflict for about four years. What was the, was there any re resolution to the war itself? Like did it actually like, it, I think the dates that are in there was that it, the war went primarily from 1991 to 1984, but like uh, why are those the dates that were chosen? Those were chosen because the Dayton Peace Accords were signed, and that was that was coined as the end of war because all of the fighting territories reached an agreement for the first time throughout this conflict. And so that, I think that's why it was that select time frame. But there is still a lot of aftermath that is present, much like any warring country, you'll still have some sort of residue of the war, especially traces of the war left not only in the people, but also in the cities itself. And it's something that is often overlooked because of like the physical manifestation of it. But even if you go into the main cities, you'll see many buildings and structures that are torn down, juxtaposed next to like these new and renovated buildings. You'll see some, um, you'll see some demolished homes that still have traces of bullet holes in them. And they just never had an opportunity to be renovated because there's a lot of people that are still suffering from poverty. It's very tricky situation because a lot of people ended up leaving the country because they figured out that they would have better job opportunities if they left. And right now, the, it's a very slow process, but the countries are slowly building up their infrastructure, some faster than others. Um, but 
that is again a whole that could be like a whole other podcast topic just because of the sheer complexity behind it and also you there are some people that still have that rhetoric of war still left over with them so i think those are some ways as to how the war was left over Mm. And and so who was on the so when they signed this agreement in uh, who were who were the two parties like who were the representatives of the two parties do you have that information like like who actually uh, like it went like even the factions like what were the two factions that uh, came to this agreement so um, the factions or the people that were involved it was the president of Bosnia the president of Croatia and the president of Serbia and there they reached a general agreement to end the war. So that is what the Dayton peace accords were about. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. So you had a, a, all three of these different uh, these different entities that agreed uh, to to have a uh, to to agree to peace. Uh, so yes. now that we are, I mean, we're in twenty twenty two now. I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> uh 2021 kind of disappeared um so now we're in 2022 right we're we're over 20 years past this uh that that time and so what have we seen happen in bosnia past that time and and as a as a connection to the topic with ukraine what can we what do you think we can expect to see happen in ukraine as uh as we start as we hopefully come to a conclusion with the the war that's going on there now like what could we see in the aftermath in the aftermath, there, I would say the aftermath is the humanitarian crisis because that is often what people overlook when it comes to wars. I think social media also has a play into that because once we stop hearing it about it in the news, we just think that it's one and done, it's over. That's great for us. Like I'm so glad they reached the end. But you do have a lot of people that are still trying to rebuild their lives. A lot of people that fled and they have to restart their lives from essentially nothing, even though there may be peace in the country. It's a lot of the country itself is trying to rebuild its own infrastructure because the war does leave a dent in that way. So there's a lot of other problems that arise that they're trying to resolve themselves, but it's extremely complicated and difficult to do. Mm. Yeah, and that actually connects to uh, some other topics that I've been digging into recently with like currency. Like what type of currency do they use in, in Bosnia? Uh, right now, Croatia, I think they're switching over to euros. But Serbia uses dinar and Bosnians they use marks. Gotcha. Okay, and that's mm-hmm. that. Is that their own currency or is it anchored to any other country? That well, the euros. It's because Croatia is part of the EU. They switched from mm. kuna to the uh, euros. Uh, so that's actually a recent development that's currently happening. I don't know how gotcha. far along it is. Gotcha. And, so, yeah. sorry, I didn't. Mean but to, to answer your question, yeah, they're all. It's their own currency. Gotcha. And then all three of those are active within the same space? Like all three of those are, are being used in Bosnia? No. So if you're in Bosnia, you would just use marks and feigning. That's the gotcha. smaller currency. And then if I were to go to Serbia, I would only use dinar over there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I just wanted to clarify because like you said earlier on the, on the map, you could give an American a, a map and most of us wouldn't be able to pick out where bosnia is or serbia or croatia or anything like that for that matter um there's a lot of us and we're kind of like uh (laughs) so so we don't really we don't really know where they are so when we're talking about these currencies i'm just curious because when you're talking about rebuilding a a, rebuilding a uh a infrastructure for a country uh there has to be a medium of exchange and that medium of exchange is tied to international markets and the value of that money and and so it's interesting to see like okay so 
like in Ukraine, we could look at what the effect will be there and what the effect has been in Bosnia. And uh, and we'll d I'll probably dig more into that. And uh, one thing I'm interested in is thinking uh, is is how crypto will play a, a factor into that, like it's been in Russia um, with their uh, after all their finances were frozen. Um, but anyway, getting back to the point of it, uh, you have Bosnia that is uh, post the war. Uh, they are recovering, and I wanted to talk about the the younger generation, right? That and this is something you mentioned to me as kind of part of your passion, and one of the things that uh, that you you wrote the book with the idea of uh, of having a a summary of what happened, so you can kind of preserve some of the history, but also so that you can uh, write a narrative for uh, people like yourself. I mean, you discovered this, these stories when you were what, like sixteen, right? Yes, when I was 16. Yeah, so, I, I mean, there's very few people know, I know who is who have wrote, written a, a book at 16. So that's that's pretty impressive in and of itself. Thank you. Um, but uh, but the, the point behind the book was to kind of summarize all of this and kind of capture these stories. And so uh, as far as the younger generation goes in Bosnia, what does that look like and what's the effect in the country? I think now, because a lot of people are still strugg uh, struggling to rebuild their lives, that there hasn't been much focus on book writing. So ultimately, what I wanted to do with this project, it, it was not only to help me learn more about my own identity and background, but it's also to encourage other people to learn about their own identity. Because in a way, once we understand where we come from, we end up becoming more open-minded and willing to listen to other people's stories as well, especially in this uh, area in the Balkan area where the culture is extremely rich and there are so many people from different backgrounds I think that it is important that they sit down and write their stories there's also the historical element behind it where where people do live through this they tend to not talk about it a lot because of the trauma but if anything I think it is important to have these difficult conversations because if we write it down and it doesn't have to be published but just by writing it down it helps the history not be forgotten and in a way we can end up learning from our mistakes in the past. Mm. Yeah, the the primary focus of this podcast is the history repeats itself. You know, we see we th we see things happening in the end and that's why I feel comfortable doing some connection between Ukraine and, and Bosnia in this in this er in this area is is that it, it's not going to be an exact match, but it's something that can give us help shed light on the new iteration of the of the situation. So that's fascinating. Now, as as far as your your father goes, I I, I know, read some stuff that in your book that you were talking about, and, and that he there was a division there that you were talking about that had to do the notes that I put down were a difference between victim culture and actual trauma. Like he was a guy who experienced actual trauma going through this stuff, and I wanted to to mention or, or ask you a little bit about what do you think about uh, victim culture being the thing that's, uh, that assumes, like in America right now, we have this kind of undertone of, of uh, a belief that you've been wronged, even though you live in a very prosperous nation, right? And then the perspective of your father coming from a place that's actually been div divided and uh, hurt and, and damaged in a serious way, and then he comes and he's able to build a life here, so what's what do you if you were going to speak for him on his uh, on his development here in America, uh, what did that look like, and how would you how would you say that he coped with the the trauma of those events uh, and and turned it into a positive thing in some in some way or did he? Yeah, so there was a lot to unpack with that question. 
Yeah, but sorry. <laughs> to start off, no, you're good. But to start off with your commentary about victim culture versus actual trauma, I, every country has their own struggle, but some struggles do end up looking differently than others. And I do think that we're really privileged to be here in the United States. Um, I'm not discrediting the United States because we do have our current uh, current events that is get, creating a lot of turmoil within the country and the people itself. Mm-hmm. But for my father, it is a different story because, as you mentioned, that he had to leave his hometown not only one, not only once and twice because he had to restart his life in Germany and then restart his life again in the United States. And it was a his story is a little bit more different because he didn't end up taking many resources from the government because he said, quote, I don't want to be a social case, end quote. Mm. I have that in the book towards the end that you can read more about. So he ended up creating his business from scratch. He started off with my grandpa. They would work together and they would, it's a very, I like to say, not cliche story, but a very, um, what's it, like a very typical refugee story where they start off from nothing and build their way up towards something. And that's something that I admire because a lot of refugees, they are hardworking people and they're willing to put in the effort to make something because at this point, they really can't lose anything because they have nothing. And that's something that a lot of people overlook, especially when it comes to the topic of the xenophobia, uh, which is something that I don't understand why it is a thing here because America prides itself on being such a diverse country and having people from different backgrounds. But I don't want to dive too much into that at the moment. Mm. Um, what was the uh, last question that you asked? That's a good question, actually. <laughs> the good question was, I think I think the way that we can kind of pull, bring that back in was uh, that, so they had this successful uh, the, this emigration from uh, from Bosnia to Germany to the United States, and they were able to build their lives from here. Um, what do you think that looks like for the younger generation that was, you know, born in the immediate aftermath of the war? I mean, uh, in your case, I mean, uh, being sixteen when you discovered this, you're kind of in that area, <laughs> you know. And um, but uh, but if, as far as I understand, you were born here, correct? Yes, I'm born in America. Mm-hmm. I'm first gen American in my family. Gotcha. And, but for those who are who who are kind of are growing up in Bosnia still, what does the actual situation look like? And from an American perspective, what do you think the the United States should be? Uh, how how far do you think we should be involved? In the aftermath, the biggest issue is that a young a lot of young people are actually leaving the country once they get the opportunity to leave because they realize they could have better jobs if they were to move to. Even Germany, they don't have to do as far as America, but they are leaving the country and that is causing a lot of problems because if your youth are leaving, then that means that you're not generating enough jobs to keep the people there. So that itself is its own economic crisis that is going on. And for the aftermath, it's hard to say to the extent of how much America should intervene because on one hand, People could argue that, oh, we have intervened during the war. That should be plenty enough because we already gave the resources. And on the other hand, they're also saying that this conflict happened in the heart of Europe. So this should be Europe's problem. So I think it just depends on how far people think the humanitarian aid should extend to, whether it should just be during the war, like during the wartime and try to reach to a peaceful resolution, or if it should be something that briefs over 
the end of the war to help the countries get back on its feet again. So I think that itself, it's a question that not many people have explored just because the world is so big and we have so many conflicts happening almost all the time, especially like internal conflicts that are happening within America. It's hard to say when we should draw the line and when we should stop providing aid. Yeah. And I mean, the United States is in a situation where there's there's always this constant argument here about uh, whether America is supposed to be the like the, the world's police officer. Right. You know, where where we where we kind of run in and we we try to take a humanitarian side in 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 things beyond our borders. Right. Where we we yeah. end up in uh, in different somewhat proxy wars um, where you end up in a situation where we may not be boots on the ground, but we have money going in one direction or something like that. And uh, the United States is the largest uh, fund. It provides more funding for the, the U United Nations and for NATO than any other country, period, um, by like multiple times over. Um, yes. and I just want to, yeah, sorry, ahead. I just want to add on to the point that you mentioned, because I think this is really important. Mm -hmm. So I did mention before in my comment that we don't know how far, like to what extent humanitarian should expand on. But when we look back at the uh, Bosnian War. I think that was the biggest humanitarian crisis, and it's actually been coined that it is the biggest humanitarian failure on the Western end since World War II. And so I think I kind of jumped the gun on my commentary before because I tried to be a bit more hopeful, but then mm -hmm. I realized that a lot of uh, outsider intervention was either extremely performative or it did not fulfill the promises that the Western countries did say that they were going to help out Bosnia in a certain way. So I just think that we do need to work on our international relations to begin with, especially since we are a global power. We are like the top 10 countries, maybe even top five, because we, are, we do have that economic influence as well. And so I think that if we're priding ourselves in being a global leader, then we need to start acting like global leaders and intervene when we start seeing conflict somewhere, especially when we know that it could be preventable. And you mentioned to me that um, that uh, while your family was involved in the war in Bosnia, they were provided with uh, medical kits that were like 30 years old and things like that. And I think that's what you mean by the performative measures. Um, is that is that accurate? Yeah, so this is something that hasn't been documented, so I do not know how credible it would be because uh, this is like my grandma's personal stories and what she witnessed on the front lines. So she would say oftentimes they would receive medications that have been beyond the expiration date and the way that they would differentiate between which, which medicine was good and which medicine was bad would be they would squish the pill. And if it was squishy, that meant it was bad. They could not consume it. But if it was still firm, then that was safe for consumption despite being past the expiration date. But I think people having to worry about whether or not the medications that they received were good, I don't think that should be something that they should sit there and ponder. So that also goes to show that, again, this is like her personal story. So you mm. can't search this up online and try to find more information about because this is stuff that... Um, the triage nurses had to deal with. They had to do. They had to be. Um, they had to be creative with the ways that they helped out the people on the front lines, just because they did not have that many resources to work with. Yeah, and and it's it's crazy how all of that unfolds on an international scale, and that yeah, there is there is from an American like citizen perspective, we don't actually. It's not like you know, I, I it's not like a donation effort where I can be like, okay, I'm gonna donate 
to this crisis, you know, um, on my taxes, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna put money here, um, kind of like with a you know like a donation type uh, deal where we're fundraising. Um, I had friends who uh, who are connected to Ukraine who we actually did raise money for specifically, and we donated money when uh, they were they were actually it was um, a, a family who controls a church, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to buy beds. Uh, to handle refugees from other areas and bring them all in. And so we were able to do that. But for for the biggest part of this, like the government itself is kind of faceless. And they will basically walk in and say, we're going to do something, and here's a billion dollars. <laughs> and and we don't actually know, like, okay, well, it's not like each American gets a receipt, you know, for, for what yeah. happened. And so, yeah. um, and so there's, there's some level where government is, in, is inherently inefficient, um, because it's a huge bureaucracy, and so and so we have to decide uh, how much can we do as a you know and and we have to kind of and if we're willing to be involved, we have to be willing to take on all of that inefficiency because it's just the way it it's just the way it works, right? So that's great. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention, and um, this is actually harkening back to earlier in a conversation with uh, the the standoff. You mentioned to me that that the that you have your grandfather and your uh, father, I believe, have um, have makeshift firearms that they built um, during this conflict, and they're in a museum somewhere. Yeah, so my dad's uncle, the one who I also call is my own uncle. Gotcha. Uh, he was a car mechanic, so he would oftentimes just create their own uh, weaponry, and uh, that ended up at a museum. I'm not sure which museum because my father never disclosed the name of it. But uh, gotcha. it is in a museum in Bosnia just to show the creative side of the war. <laughs> wow, that's interesting because you see um, improvised, you know, they say that the that uh, that the lack of opportunity is like the is the it creates more creativity. Right. It, like if you if you take away all your options, then suddenly you have to become creative and that's what fuels that. And so when you have nothing else to do, you ha you become creative. Also, just to like uh, clarify one thing, yeah. the only reason he made it is because um, it was like a lawless time. There were no more regulations. And if he, they wanted to receive firearms, they would have to cross the country to mm. buy them. And then they figured that that was too much time to get their own like form of protection. So he just decided to make his own. Well, I imagine if there's an active conflict going on and you need firearms or you need access to some sort of defensive measures and uh, you have to cross all of that zone to be able to get to them. Uh, then you're, I mean, you're, you're basically unprotected for all your distance there and you're putting, you're basically taking yourself and putting yourself in the middle of it. And so it makes sense what they did. So I, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's all my, all my questions for right now, but is there anything else that you wanted to add that I haven't asked about yet? Honestly, I think we have covered all the points, but I would say the biggest takeaway message that I want to give your audience is that I hope that this has inspired them to start writing about their own personal story and their own family history. And it does not have to be published, like I've said before, but it's just really important to have some sort of documentation of that, just so that we can learn from others, learn from about ourselves, and so that hopefully we, we, we could become more open-minded and avoid more tragedies from occurring in the future. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, you know, think about it in the past, like, you know, we recover stuff that people wrote on parchment, like, you know, a long time ago, right? Like we recover that one page that only exists there. And uh, nowadays we have like Google Drive or whatever. So if you upload it to like upload it to the cloud, I mean, like the the amount of what is recoverable of what you upload there is like ridiculous. So, so you know, we're probably the most well-documented generation ever. 
And uh, and so it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds. But definitely taking the time to write it out. And I think the other thing that you did that was really interesting was you just talked with people and talked with your family, talked with your elders. Um, and uh, and that's something that is also uh, a bit lacking in our in our conversations these days. I do agree with that message. And also just conversing with people. It's so easy in this day and age to be so caught up in all of the horrors that social media so shows us. But I do think it's important to stay away from the dehumanizing statistics and start learning about the people's stories. Because my, uh, my book, it only talks about two refugee stories out of the 1.1 million refugees that were generated from Bosnia. So all these refugees have their own unique and uh, unique stories about their suffering and how they bounce back from it. So that's why I think we should go out there and start talking to people and have that those difficult conversations. Great. Now tell everybody about the title of your book again and where they can find it. Yes. Yeah, so my book is called Trees Without Roots. You can find um, you can find the copies on my webpage www.treeswithoutroots.com, and there's even a Bosnian translation of it also available on that same page as well. Excellent. Excellent. Wow, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for taking your time to talk with me. Uh, this has been a really great conversation. And uh, perhaps, I mean, we touched on a few things that we might even dig into a little bit more in the future. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll discuss more about that offline. But <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah, And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it and it shed some light on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now and uh, and that you just got some general knowledge that was uh, helpful for shaping your worldview. Uh, what we do with Oxus is we try to help people develop better defensive mindsets and establish good defensive education. And that includes understanding just things about the world because if we understand the world better and we understand what's going on and uh, the, the a little bit more depth than what the average person has. It gives us an edge in understanding, uh, building greater wisdom about how the world works and how to navigate it. So thank you guys so much for listening again. Uh, if you're interested in working with Oxus, you can find us on Facebook. We are at on Oxus as Oxus Practical Defense. Uh, we're also on Instagram under that same name. Uh, you can search for those things on uh, Facebook or Instagram to connect with us there. You can also go to our website, oxus.llc. What we do is we work on helping people develop a defensive mindset and work on their defensive education. This includes physical defense, such as hand-to-hand -hand combat or understanding uh, concealed carry, uh, doing uh, taking all the proper safety classes that are affiliated with that. But we also do educational topics, such as this podcast, where we're talking about uh, whatever is going on in the world today and shaping your worldview to help Help you be better equipped for the future. So check out our websites over there. We also work with church security teams and and businesses uh, to help them to uh, do everything within the law and understand how to properly train their their individuals and help them make sure that they are prepared for exigent circumstances. So thank you guys for listening. Check out our website oxus.llc. You can also chat with us through the website directly. So feel free to do that, and we'll be glad to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and have an excellent rest of your day.